The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. As usual, on today's No Restraint Podcast, There's just a lot of ground to cover. I've read some very interesting pieces. I'm going to be sharing some of them with you. One by Joanne Silberner about the cure for Alzheimer's. Well, exactly the question is, where is the cure for Alzheimer's? Because medicine has had nothing new to offer since my own dear mother departed in 2010. And my mother was a gentle and a kind woman who loved being around people. And then all of a sudden, she began to avoid social contact. She was embarrassed by her inability to remember things, particularly the names of people and even their faces. She was a woman with a lot of street smarts all her life and had convinced people that she was actually much better educated than she was was always able to work in jobs that generally had gone to college graduates, even though she was barely a high school graduate herself. But then Alzheimer's came. And by the time we realized that it was more serious than just some memory lapses, by the time we actually got her to go to a neurologist to have it checked out, we were shocked at some of the missing pieces that he was able to ascertain. She couldn't draw a clock with the numbers in the correct location. She certainly didn't feel safe driving, and as a matter of fact, had a terrible accident just prior to stopping. She also would stare blankly at people, and during the initial examination, she stared blankly at the neurologist when he asked her, what was the name of the current president? And though, of course, she eventually was able to answer the question, it took a long pause. And she did remember that she wouldn't normally have liked someone like him, but she found herself drawn to him. That was Barack Obama. My mother got lost in familiar places, even around her house, and she became very depressed, deeply depressed. And it was that year, as a reporter for the National Public Radio Station said, that the FDA hearing on a new Alzheimer's drug called Nemenda was really put into effect. And from all the data that was presented, it didn't really seem to do much to help people who were suffering from Alzheimer's. And at the same time, What's true for most Alzheimer's families is we were desperate to latch onto anything that just might keep our loved one from slipping away. So when the drug was approved, we all decided that we would give my mother those useless pills. And my daughter was in medical school at the time, and she thought that it would probably do little or no harm and she would keep a watch on her grandmother. And I guess I had great hopes and great expectations, but none of them came true. 
My mother died in 2010, and prior to her death, she would say things to people like, I can't remember your name, but I do remember that I like you, or when did you get so chubby, and things like that. She just fired from the hip. Not that she wasn't known for that always. Nemenda, which blocks a brain neurotransmitter, is still on the market, along with another class of drugs that came out a few years before that, which stimulate a different neurotransmitter. Yet as an AARP report put it in 2018, such drugs are unable to address the underlying cause of the disease or even to delay institutionalization to improve quality of life or lessen the burden on caregivers. Recently, you might have heard the news that all this may be changing. The two manufacturers of a drug called Ikenimab, a twice-monthly intravenous infusion, are hoping the FDA gives them accelerated approval this week. A consensus statement signed by more than 200 Alzheimer's researchers, many of whom have consulted for the pharmaceutical companies, declared that Ikenimab is a foundational game changer. Their words, not mine. Press reports have described the results of a clinical trial as, quote, monumentous, a possible triumphant turning point, and perhaps the beginning of a new era. That this drug is being heralded as a breakthrough is actually a statement on how miserable the state of Alzheimer's research really is. At best, Ikenimab might slightly slow a patient's inevitable decline for a few months. As Dr. Ronald C. Peterson, director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, who found the results pretty impressive, said, it was a modest clinical response. It didn't stop the disease. It didn't make anybody better. Not that it was supposed to. In other words, more than a decade and a half since my mother's death, the more than 6 million American families with a loved one with Alzheimer's are facing exactly the same fate as I did. While treatments for diseases such as many cancers, some autoimmune disorders like MS and HIV have undergone revolutions during this period, Alzheimer's has defied all attempts at altering the course of this brain-robbing disease. The treatments that are always promised are still around a distant corner. I've looked at medical news for a long time. I'm a big believer in medicine's triumphs. So was my mother. But why did medicine have nothing to offer my family and so many like ours? So, Ms. Silburner set out to discover why. In 2019, the celebrated science writer, Sharon Begley, wrote a startling investigative story for the health and medicine publication, STAT, about why Alzheimer's research was mired in decades of failure. She asserted this wasn't just due to the complexity of the brain or the infernal nature of Alzheimer's itself. There was another reason that had less to do with the nature of the disease and more to do with the nature of research. As she wrote, the most influential researchers have long believed so dogmatically in one theory of Alzheimer's that they systematically thwarted alternative approaches. Several scientists described those who controlled the Alzheimer's agenda as a cabal, 
In more than two dozen interviews, scientists whose ideas fell outside the dogma recounted how, for decades, believers in the dominant hypothesis suppressed research on alternative ideas. This stifling of competing ideas, say a growing number of scholars, is a big reason why there's no treatment for Alzheimer's. And the story of this theory starts in 1906 when a German psychiatrist named Alois Alzheimer was studying the brain of a recently deceased woman with dramatic short-term memory loss. During the autopsy, Alzheimer saw dense plaques and tangles in her brain. Eventually, his findings set off decades of research into the nature and effect of those clogs. In 1984, researchers from the University of California, San Diego, published one of the first reports on what those plaques were made of, a protein fragment called beta amyloid. In 1987, Dr. Rachel Neve, then an assistant professor and molecular biologist at Boston's Children's Hospital with colleagues, cloned the amyloid precursor protein gene, as did several other labs. Meanwhile, other scientists around the world were associating amyloid proteins with Alzheimer's as well, characterizing the proteins and finding genetic defects related to amyloid in people with an inherited form of the disease. It looked pretty clear. The amyloid clumps must be causing the disease. So it makes sense that clearing this debris would return a brain to health. I remember when I first heard about this and how quickly I clung to this as the great hope for my mother. But there was a problem with this theory. Some people with Alzheimer's disease didn't have discernible plaques. My mother was one of them. And some people had discernible plaques without symptoms of the disease. Nebe herself didn't believe that there was enough evidence to blame the plaques. And it turned out that once drugs were developed to clear the plaques, when they were given to patients in clinical trials, the patients didn't improve. Still, the amyloid believers persisted. Not just persisted, the goal of mitigating amyloid in the brain has held a vice-like grip on Alzheimer's research for decades, despite the fact that one by one, the drugs that were designed to address amyloid, around 20 of them now, have shown virtually no beneficial effects on patients. One way to understand the persistence of the amyloid theory is to look at the incentives of big academic medicine, big governmental medicine, and big pharma. For decades, time and effort and money have been sunk into this single hypothesis. If we just make the right intervention in the process of amyloid being deposited in the brain, the logic goes, Alzheimer's can be beaten. Acknowledging that this theory may be a dead end would mean entire careers and billions of dollars have all been devoted to the wrong idea. Not only that, there is no clear path to the right one. Dr. Dennis Seklow, professor of neurologic diseases at Harvard Medical School, is among the most prominent supporters of the amyloid hypothesis. He's not happy about accusations of a cabal. It's my opinion that there was never any kind of organized or even semi-organized or concerted effort to delegate any aspect of Alzheimer's research 
to an inferior position and heighten amyloid studies, he said. Like everything in science and the world, it was a competition of ideas. He says some of his own amyloid grants have been rejected and journals have turned down some of his papers. That's just part of academic research. For many years, the powers that be within the neuroscience community, researchers who sit on the committees that determine who gets financial support from the government and research organizations, and who review the research papers for medical journals to determine what should be published, supported the amyloid hypothesis to the virtual exclusion of any others. As Sharon Begley described it, amyloid proponents influenced what studies got published in top journals, which scientists got funded, who got tenure, and who got speaking slots at reputation-buffing scientific conferences. All it takes is one member of a granting committee, typically they have a dozen members, or one of the usual three or so reviewers of a research article to kill a project. Cabal or not, and while I think there's groupthink going on, I don't think amyloid proponents are engaging in a conspiracy. The frustration of the suppressed scientists was and is palpable and has sent some talented researchers to other fields. Rachel Neve is one. Neve says her contract for grants at the NIH told her she'd have a better chance of getting her research funded if she included someone who was an advocate of the amyloid hypothesis on her proposals. She was, at the time, finding indications that non-amyloid parts of the protein she and others had identified were killing brain cells on their own. She repeatedly saw research articles by herself and others get rejected by top-tier scientific journals. It was dispiriting to see beautiful papers that proposed alternatives to the amyloid hypothesis relegated to second and third echelon journals again and again. Neve eventually left the Alzheimer's field because she was disillusioned by the heavy focus on amyloids. The amyloid hypothesis is one of the most tragic stories in modern biomedical research, Neve says. The field of Alzheimer's research has effectively been at a standstill because of that. Nobel laureate Dr. Thomas C. Sudhoff, a professor of molecular and cellular physiology at Stanford Medicine, says medical journals are particularly to blame. Publications in scientific journals, preferably prestigious ones, are make or break for scientists' careers. But the experts who get to decide what is published have a personal incentive not to encourage findings that might run counter to their own beliefs. Sudhoff, who is a consultant to several companies working on drugs for Alzheimer's, says too often, a reviewer or two will scotch a good paper because it doesn't support a causative role for an amyloid. The sociology of science is set up so that people do research that will get published and that will get grants. Sudhoff thinks the focus on finding a drug to stop the disease without first understanding better the processes that cause Alzheimer's has set back progress. The science of Alzheimer's disease vastly overfocused for decades on amyloid, instead of really looking at the basic fundamental biology. They just looked at more clinically oriented work. 
and as a result, not much has come out of this. Dr. Daniel Alcon ran a neuroscience lab at the NIH for 30 years. He said that in his decades at the NIH, he saw the same kind of pressure Neve and Sudhoff did, including the challenges of publishing in scientific journals. He himself didn't think amyloids alone in the concentrations in which they were found in patients are enough to be the sole cause of the disease. Still, he says, for a long time, the amyloid hypothesis was conventional wisdom, so much so that other innovative approaches were discouraged in terms of grants awarded and articles published in high-profile journals. The exclusive focus has hurt, he says. It pushes out other ways of thinking about the disease, and for that reason, discourages innovation. Alcon himself has another way of thinking about Alzheimer's. He believes that symptoms come from the loss of synapses, the connections between neurons that allow them to communicate with each other. Alkin moved on from the NIH when he was recruited by the Rockefeller family to start a neurosciences institute. Today, he is president and chief science officer of the biotech firm Synaptogenics, which is seeking cures for Alzheimer's and other conditions that damage cognitive function. Over the years, he has encountered many amyloid champions at drug companies. Unless I could show that what we were doing also reduced the amyloid, they were decidedly less interested in funding, he says. Drug companies have powerful motivations to stick with the amyloid hypothesis, even if it has repeatedly disappointed, Alkin says. Drug development costs hundreds of millions of dollars. If executives were to authorize a non-amyloid treatment that failed, the attempt would be hard to justify. However, if they stick with the theory promoted by leading academics, another failure doesn't look that bad. But as Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard Feynman once said, reality must take precedence over public relations, for nature cannot be fooled. There's a tragic human cost to drug companies' conservatism. Like me, Rachel Neve had a parent with Alzheimer's. I believe, she says, that my mother, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and who died after years of suffering, might have had a fighting chance if alternate hypothesis had been funded and published, spurring biotech companies to put resources into more than clearing amyloid. After so many years of defeat, the criteria for success in Alzheimer's treatment has become so circumscribed that drugs are brought to market, like the one that was taken by my mother, that everyone knows do little to nothing, cost a lot of money, and often have terrible side effects. We are at a point where it appears the only potential beneficiaries of these pharmaceuticals are drug company shareholders. Take the FDA's approval last June for the drug adunicanumab, which has become a scandal. Clinical trials in patients with mild Alzheimer's disease taking aducinumab, a lab-made antibody designed to chew up amyloid plaques, was halted by its manufacturers when it failed to benefit patients. When the manufacturers, American biotech company Biogen and Japanese biotech 
ALSI parsed the data. They found that adutakinumacab somewhat lowered amyloid levels. So on that basis, Biogen sought approval for the drug because the company could show the drug fit the failing amyloid theory, even as it did nothing for patients. The strategy faced a major hurdle. 10 of the 11 members of an FDA advisory committee noting there was not enough evidence to say that the drug slowed cognitive decline, voted against its approval. Then to push the drug through the process, FDA leadership switched the criterion for approval to demonstrating a reduction in amyloid deposits. The agency then okayed what came to be marketed as Aduhelm, calling it in a press release the first therapy that targets the fundamental pathophysiology of the disease. At that point, three appalled members of the advisory committee quit. Harvard Medical School professor Aaron Kesselheim, one of the departing advisory committee members, told the acting FDA commissioner in his resignation letter that the agency's nod to adunakinumab was probably the worst drug approval decision in recent U.S. history. In late December, a damning congressional investigation into the drug found that the interactions between the FDA and Biogen were atypical and that the regulator and the drug manufacturer inappropriately collaborated during the process. It published documents from Biogen showing the company priced the IV drug at a staggering $56,000 per patient per year in order to make history with a blockbuster drug launch. It would have been historic indeed, as the investigation shows. Picking up that tab for Adahem would have been ruinous both for the budget of Medicare and for many individual patients forced to cover the copay. Aduhelm has now essentially been sidelined, not only because of cost and ineffectiveness, but also for its frequent side effects of brain swelling and bleeding. All this brings us back to Biogen and Isai's new drug, Liakenemabab, the game-changer amyloid treatment that's scheduled for possible accelerated approval by the FDA soon. If it comes to market, some analysts predict it could surpass $9 billion a year in sales. Biogen touted the highly statistically significant reduction of clinical decline in a press release at the end of September. So let me explain what a game changer for Alzheimer's really looks like. For the trial, nearly 1,800 people diagnosed with Alzheimer's were divided in half, with one group getting uh, iakenumab, the other a placebo. These patients were then evaluated for their ability to perform activities of daily living, such as feeding and dressing themselves. Their cognitive function, such as the ability to identify common objects and be socially appropriate, was also assessed. In the ikenumab group, the drug slowed cognitive decline among patients by 0.45 points on an 18-point scale. You read that right. You heard me right. Less than a one-point improvement in evaluations of patients' memory, judgment, 
ability to care for themselves, and other measures. And that's a slowing of deterioration, not a reversal. In addition, three patients in the clinical trial are known to have died from bleeding and swelling of the brain that is believed to be a result of the treatment. As an article in Science notes, brain swelling is a well-documented side effect of medications that attack amyloid. There have been mixed reactions to ikenumab in the Alzheimer's research community. Harvard's Dennis Selko, one of the major promoters of the amyloid hypothesis, is thrilled. He notes of the drug's results that the longer the patients were on it, the greater the slowing of degeneration. Selko, who has done consulting for these companies, said for most patients, the side effects were generally mild and manageable. Collectively, these results prove the amyloid hypothesis is scientifically correct. For him, this provides vindication for the belief that addressing amyloid is key to Alzheimer's prevention and cure. Indeed, greater focus might have enabled the field to achieve this breakthrough for patients earlier than now. In the BMJ, Rob Howard, a geriatric psychiatrist at the University College London, observed of the results that this is just too small a difference to be noticed in an individual patient, and none of the reported results reached accepted levels of improvement to constitute a clinically meaningful effect. But he and others did note that the slowing of degeneration gave credence to the amyloid hypothesis, calling it a believable path. The anti-amyloid crowd isn't impressed. Neuroscientist Daniel Alcon, formerly of the NIH, says of patients who took the drug, they are still declining. That's not what we should be aiming for. After 20 years of failed trials, I think it's reasonable to argue that it's time to try to find a therapeutic approach that makes patients better rather than just slowing down the progression. There's also concern that even a marginally useful amyloid drug could end up diverting precious resources back into amyloid and away from other possible treatment avenues. Eleanor Drummond, an Alzheimer's researcher at Australia's University of Sydney, said she felt trepidation at that prospect. In the past, all the funding eggs have been in the amyloid basket. We didn't want that to happen again. And even though there today are a number of non-amyloid approaches to treating Alzheimer's being tried, the disease continues to frustrate and confound. A clinical trial by Alcon's firm, Synaptogenics, has been testing a drug that restores brain synapses, but patients have failed to show improvement after 28 weeks on the drug. Other approaches under investigation include anti-herpes drug trials, because there's some evidence to suggest that herpes simplex virus type 1 might be involved in the onset of Alzheimer's. Antibacterials are being tried based on the possibility that chronic inflammation from infection might be a precipitator. And some clinicians are suggesting that we have to stop looking for one solution and start considering a cocktail of drugs, a technique that has been so successful with some cancers and HIV. Sharon Begley, who wrote in 2019 of the singular focus on amyloid, didn't live to do a follow-up to her Alzheimer's story. She died of lung cancer at age 64. And if my mother were diagnosed today, 
11 years after her death, there still would be nothing to stop or reverse the course of her illness. But at least the Alzheimer's research community has begun to recognize they must pursue multiple paths of unraveling this disease. Maybe a new discovery will one day bring real hope. We've had enough of the false kind. I know I'm not alone in this. So for those of you who are struggling with a family member with Alzheimer's, or they themselves struggling, you struggling with memory lapses that seem to be growing more frequent and more disturbing, maybe there is some hope. Maybe the hope is that with people writing articles like this one and people reading articles like I've done, we can actually come up with a cure for Alzheimer's. Thank you for listening to the No Restraint Podcast. Over and out. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.